0: I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 1. We'll be uh, looking at a couple verses there in just a moment. 1 Kings chapter 1. It's good to see everyone uh, that's here this evening with us. Uh, It's good to be able to worship God with you as always, to study His Word. Uh, I hope that what we go through tonight will be uh, helpful and applicable, especially as we just continue to um, look a little bit more at David's example. Um, Before we get into that, I just want to mention again that the monthly men's class is this week it's going to be this tuesday at seven and it's going to be at the building so uh especially if you're a member here this is for all ages from tall to short from oldest to youngest uh it'll be encouraging to have you here and um hopefully it will benefit us all uh as we are able to be together uh, more often and be able to study God's word together on um, some, some topical things um, and so that's going to be uh, this Tuesday so just make sure that uh, men that you're here for that uh, on Tuesday night um, so again in 1st Kings chapter 1 I want to read a couple verses here and this is going to really be the um, kind of a springboard into what I would say is kind of a comprehensive look at David's reign not as a whole, but specifically when it comes to his family. And you'll see why in just a moment. But in 1 Kings chapter 1, in verse 5, it says, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, this is the son of David, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. Uh, he had conferred with Joab, the son of Zer- Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and following Adonijah, they helped him. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, Rehi, and the mighty men who belonged to David, were not with Adonijah. Um, and we'll stop there. What you actually see, if you keep reading in chapter 1, is uh, after this, this creates a kind of a chaotic situation for David, because clearly... The, king, the son of his that's going to be king next is Solomon. And we all know that. But here's another son who says, I'm, I'm going to be the king. And he exalts himself. Um, and Bathsheba comes uh, to David. Bathsheba and Nathan both come to David and they talk to him about this. And they do set this right. Um, But I don't really want to talk about that story in particular. What I want to talk about is what you see in verse 6. It says that his father had never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done this? Uh, There's a footnote in the New American Standard uh, Bible in verse 6 that says his father had never pained him to talk about this or to ask him, Why have you done this? I I think that here is uh, at the conclusion of David's life, I think this is a pretty good indication of, uh, it's a consistent indicator of how David treated his family or family issues throughout his life. I want to say from the outset that just like we talked about this morning, David was a righteous man. He was a man after God's own heart, but that doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes. And what I want to look at is what was it that, that, and we're not even going to look at the sin with Bathsheba tonight. But... What seems to be the consistent temptation for David uh, is his family and particularly his children. David was a righteous man, but he didn't always act when he should have. Not just he didn't act the way he should have, but he didn't act when there was action needed. And so that is uh, hence the title uh, of the lesson tonight. I want to look at, um, again, specifically starting back in 2 Samuel chapter 13 right after the story of the sin between David and Bathsheba and how he kills Uriah the Hittite. I want to see how, uh, beginning in chapter 13, um, David will see certain things happen within his household, see his children committing certain sins, and, and ultimately I don't think that he, he, he tends not to go far enough in the action, or he just doesn't act at all. Being idle can be just as devastating as, as just outright wicked actions. Um, in fact, I, I think a lot of times we think that inactivity is, is you know, not an action, but sometimes it, it is very, it takes a lot of effort to be inactive at times. You know, you tell a child that you want them to sit there, be quiet, and don't move. That actually takes a lot of effort for that child. Uh, and so inactivity, um, is, I think it's also a choice that we can make. I think it's a terrible uh, a choice that really brings much more destruction often than we care to admit when looking at the situation. And so I want to make this point as we look at David and just learn a few uh, lessons from his life, particularly uh, in his interactions with his children. Coming back to 2 Samuel chapter 13. <laughs> 2 Samuel chapter 13. This is the story of Amnon and Tamar. And you may know the story, you may not. But here is a son and daughter of David. <coughs> Amnon is, uh, they're, they're not, you know, full-blooded siblings, but they are still siblings. But Amnon has uh, lust for Tamar, and he acts on that in a very evil way. He assaults her, he overcomes her, he throws her out, and all of this is done, uh, and, and really, I, I do think it's interesting that you start with this story right after uh, the the punishment that David um, is is given from God right after a sin with Bathsheba because I think here is the start of that that chaos that will not leave his household. Uh, it begins immediately in the next chapter, and so you have this terrible, terrifying story of Amnon treating Tamar this way, and what this starts is is just a domino effect of of familial. Uh, chaos, familial hatred, within David's own household, there is going to be war. Not just war with the Philistines, not just war with with you know known enemies of God, pagan nations, but with his children and between his children. So after all of this between Amnon and Tamar, we won't. I don't want to get into too much description there. You understand what happens. He he forces himself on her. He lies with her. And after all of this, it creates such a bitter and hostile environment especially between Tamar's uh, full-blooded brother Absalom and he is a name that you all know because he is the one that usurps the throne uh, within this story so in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel one of the things one of the lessons that I think we can take from David in a, le- in a story like this is that David he doesn't really respond in any way toward Amnon's treachery when it deserved a very righteous and swift response uh, in chapter 13 and verse 21, it says, Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now, it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in beth-hazor which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Now what you're going to find after this is that he... Kind of creates this um, uh, this this scenario where all of the king's sons are going to be together, and he uses this event to kill Amnon. Now, what's interesting is that two years have passed, and it doesn't seem like there's been any discipline. Two years have passed, and I mean, think about the offense that Amnon committed. That is a, that is a, a sin. That is a an action that is punishable by death by God's law. Nothing's done. Now, I do think that it's true, uh, clearly it's true, when it says that David was angry. And maybe it was even righteous anger. But it means nothing without corresponding action. It's it's one thing to say, well, that's just so terrible, that's so wrong, I can't. But when you have authority over it, it's kind of like when you look at what Pilate does with Jesus. He had the authority to stop it. He knew that it was evil. He knew that Jesus was innocent. But, you know, I washed my hands of this. Well, we all understand that you, you, you don't wash your hands of anything. You, I mean, you may look the part. You may try to act like you're, you're clean in this. But no, you're just as guilty. Because you had the power you had the authority to let him go. You didn't. And in the same way, I look at David here and I think, how could two years go by? And, and nothing, nothing seems to be done. I think that this is a, a grave mistake often. This is one example of how righteous men and women can be idle. They see something that's going on, they see sin that has occurred, and, and they just say, well, maybe it's none of my business. Uh, you think especially about David, the previous chapter, he has violated Bathsheba and he has killed Uriah the Hittite. You could maybe even think that he, in his mind he was thinking after hearing about this, well, you know, I can't really say anything because I've done some stupid things before and I've done something that was even somewhat similar. Not exactly the same. But I mean I've, I've done some bad things myself. So you know what? I have no right to say anything. Does that get David off the hook? This is, this is the father of all these children. This is the king of Israel. No one has more authority than him. No one has more power than him. And, and there, are they, there seems to be few that have uh, as much wisdom as him. Especially when it comes to the scriptures. And I think that there is a level of, of he knew better. But he decided not to do anything and what that created was uh, uh, in that vacuum of, of, of you know idleness, of nothing going on and no discipline, what that created was two years of Absalom becoming more bitter, more hateful, and ultimately you see the end of his journey. He takes that to such a degree that he kills Amnon, he has to go in exile for a while, but after a while he's able to come back and then he takes the kingdom for himself. And he utilizes his relationships uh, as as the king's son to take over the throne. He, he violates even more people so as to uh, bring shame to his father, David. And I just wonder, if something had been done, would would this story of Absalom even be here? If something had been done right from the get-go? Uh, if David had, had done something? Well, uh, not only that, but in the same chapter, David does indeed mourn for Amnon, I would say, in verse 37. It says uh, in Second Samuel chapter 13, in verse 37, Absalom fled and went to Talmai after he had killed Amnon, the son of Ammiah, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. The heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. Now in verse 37... You do see, I think, again, a legitimate emotion. David mourns, but it's just, it, it seems to be just too late. I wonder what would have happened. Again, a lot of this just comes down to could we have changed the conclusion of the matter here if we had just, from the outset, acted, from the outset, mourned, instead of waiting till the worst possible conclusion and then mourning. What, what if David had mourned from the very beginning? And through that mourning, through that, that godly kind of sorrow, what if he had brought about a, a greater moment of, of salvation? Not just, for, not just for Absalom, but even maybe for Amnon. He had already experienced the immense mercy of God after the sin with Bathsheba. Because even those sins, killing Uriah the Hittite and the uh, adultery with Bathsheba, both of those, they were, they were punishable by death again, by God's law. He experienced God's grace and God's mercy uh, in the fact that, that he was not put to death after the fact. And it was because of that true repentance. I, I, I just, I can't imagine that David couldn't have come to his ch- child, come to his children, and tried to relate those things. Maybe something could have changed. I'm not saying that that Ammon wouldn't have been put to death uh, at all. But, At the very least, there could have been some attempt. Uh, But it doesn't seem to be that there was any attempt. And because of that, there's an even greater mourning. Now, Amnon is dead, and he seems to have died without any repentant heart. Absalom has fled from his country. He's fled from his home, and now he has lost two sons. All of that because the mourning didn't happen when it should have from the beginning. This makes me think especially about uh, that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because Paul talks about this notion of mourning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He begins talking about the church at Corinth and some of the <clears throat> ways that they, are. they seem to be um, they, they seem to be accepting behaviors that are sinful and that shouldn't be a part of their number. It says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst now as he continues uh, writing to the church at Corinth he's going to say this is going to be something that ultimately is good for everyone for every party because it's going to mean that you are doing what you're supposed to do and making sure that sin is completely out of the camp, that you drive it out of the camp, out of, out of the church, among you. And, and not only that, but you are going to be instructive. You're going to be helping the brother who is currently sinning. How do we do that? By not being arrogant and acting like, oh, well, we're, we're going to be tolerant here. Nothing like the, the arrogance of tolerance. And because they were tolerating things, they 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 were allow they were just fostering the sin. They were fostering uh, a a, uh, a non holy environment within the church. And he says, "You ought to have mourned," and that mourning ultimately is supposed to lead to to hopefully repentance from everyone. Um, now. I want, again, I come back to uh, this idea of David mourning. If he had dealt with, if he had mourned this earlier, perhaps Amnon, if he was penitent, would still be alive. I don't know. But we do have a pattern of God saying, I'm, I'm willing to forgive those who are truly, truly repentant, who are truly sorrowful for what they have done. Um, now, I, I, I just want, I just wonder, it, had David acted earlier, if he had mourned earlier uh, if that could have been the case either way he didn't and clearly that leads to uh, disaster as you see and you continue to read throughout this story coming back to second samuel in chapter 14. not only should he have acted from the beginning should he have mourned from the beginning been more shown more sorrow from the beginning but I, i think when it comes to family he, he tends to make decisions, not because he knew it was the righteous thing to do, but because he's really been coaxed into it, or coaxed into certain situations. Over in 2 Samuel chapter 14, <coughs> 2 Samuel chapter 14 beginning in verse 18. 2 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 18. It says, Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide anything from me that I'm about to ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king please speak. Now he's speaking to a woman who Joab has sent to the king kind of secretively since Absalom has been in exile. And Joab sees that the king has been distraught by this. He misses Absalom. He wants his son back. And uh, so he sends this woman secretly to kind of give this illustration uh, uh, to, to maybe tie this into uh, David's situation with Absalom saying well you know what why don't, why don't you let Absalom come back why don't you bring your son back uh, if you are going to be so kind in the previous illustration now he is a discerning man uh, David and so he asks in verse 19 is the hand of Joab with you in all this and the woman replied as your soul lives my lord the king no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken indeed It was your servant Joab who commanded me, and it was he who put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. In order to change the appearance of things, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all that is in the earth. And so he kind of sees past this, but in verse 21, it says, Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I will surely do this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, O my lord the king, and that the king has performed the request of his servant. And we'll continue on in just a moment. <coughs> but what you see here is uh, David has, has maybe I don't know whether he's thought about it or not, but he doesn't make this decision because this is the right thing to do. Something needs to be dealt with here. There's a problem that needs fixing, and so we need to deal with it. We need to get active on this. It's not that attitude that brings him to this conclusion. He has to be pulled into it. And we're going to see even more as we go throughout the next few chapters, uh, a a couple instances where he really has to be pulled into making um, um, the right decisions and really kind of changing to a proper attitude. Um, But we'll get to that in just a moment. But you stay in chapter, uh, or go over to chapter 18, rather chapter eighteen <clears throat> here is where you get towards the conclusion of the matter with Absalom and and so much has happened Absalom has usurped the throne as we already indicated he has he has uh, violated the concubines of the king in public so as to bring full amount of shame to David's name and so in verse five while they are in this kind of civil war to a degree. It says that the king, David, charged Joab and Abishai and Ittai saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. Now, ultimately, Absalom is killed uh, in, in the battle. You skip down to verse 33. When he hears about this, when he sees the conclusion of the matter, it says the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said, as he walked, Oh my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, when I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Now, let me just say the point here is not is not to say that David is 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 uh, is wrong just because he has very natural feelings about losing a child, about losing family, but what you do see is that David does not seem to have in his language or in his his attitude the the proper mindset of all of the treachery that absalom has has involved himself in even after all of the wickedness and just how he has made himself a stench among the people of israel and especially when you look at god's law david wouldn't treat absalom's sins as as the terrible offenses that they were now A couple of times now, he has been given an illustration, whether it be from Nathan or the woman that we just read uh, about. And in the illustration, he tends to give very firm and very uh, swift answers. This is the right thing to do, and and of course this is the right thing to do. But when it comes down to his own family, he tends to weaken in his resolve. Now again, this lesson, I'm, I'm really focusing on David's mistakes. I'm not saying that he was an unrighteous man. He, but he also wasn't perfect. And one of the reasons I think he was such a righteous man is because in, even w- with his mistakes, he learned, I-, I would say, from them, and he grew past them. He didn't stay in a stupor of, well, I refuse to move forward. I refuse to grow up. No, he tends to leave pride behind, especially when he's confronted. And he says, I, I should have acted differently. And he does. Um, And so I don't want to indicate at all that David was not actually a righteous man. I just want to look at one temptation that I think really, really struck him and and made his faith feeble time and time again. And I think that this temptation has not changed today. It is so easy to give, to, to be so firm and strict about those who maybe we just don't care about or maybe we just don't have that much, uh, that strong attachment to. But when it comes to our own family members, and we see what God's word has to say, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so strict on that. I think, it's, I think this especially with, uh, when it comes to church discipline. I, think, I tend to come to this example because uh, just within my own family, this is something that I have had to deal with in my own relationships personally. But it, it's so fascinating to me. I remember when I I really started studying the Bible and trying to figure out what I what I as an individual needed to do because I was a Christian and I had been reading through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and I just thought I I don't think I'm doing I don't think I'm obeying this at all. And I talked to several different men uh, I, about these passages because I wanted to make sure that I was I was being true to the text. Now, <clears throat> whether or not maybe I was trying to resist what it was saying because it's pretty clear. Uh, I, I went to several different men and men that I trusted. And, and you know, <laughs> three specifically. Two of them said essentially what I thought they were going to say. That, you know, I understand that it's going to be harder when it comes to familial relationships. I understand that even the application may look different to some degree. But, never does it say that, you know what, there's an the exception to this rule is family. it never says that again the application may not look the exact same, especially when you think about like the, the spouse the husband and wife relationship that's going to be difficult to manu- to, to, uh, to maneuver that's going to be difficult to maintain but that doesn't mean that you just throw that rule by the, by the wayside. It doesn't mean you just forget everything that God has said because he didn't say, but if your wife does not, if your wife leaves the Lord, abandons, uh, abandons the faith, and puts Christ to open shame again, well, then you don't have to act. any. You know, the, the relationship between you and her don't have to change. No. It's still going to change. I, I, two of the men that I talked to they, they uh, said exactly what I thought they were going to say is exactly that, that there doesn't seem to be an exception. One man that I, I trusted, he said the very opposite. He said, well, how are you, gonna, how are you going to uh, affect your family members if, if you never see them? Well, I, I, I didn't really think that that study went as well, um, maybe as he thought, because that wasn't the question. It wasn't, me- should I ever see them again? It was, does this apply to family members? And it did. Now, all of that just to say, we, it, it, it can be so easy to, again, weaken our resolve and say, you know what, maybe this is the exception. We just don't have to think about it. But what we see, especially in David's life, is that do, thinking in that way and maybe uh, you know, acquiescing to, to this kind of temptation over and over again, I think, led to more tragedy. More calamity. It made things way more destructive. There's already pain. There's already suffering and there's already sin involved. Are we going to compound that? Are we going to add on to that and make things so much worse by making the wrong decision? Now, there's several other applications we can make from that. that the, I just went through that because that's one that I've um, noticed, especially just in, in my own personal relationships uh, in the past several years. But coming back to chapter 14 of Second Samuel. <coughs> coming back to chapter 14. <coughs> Moving on to the, the next point. I would say even when he does act. Even when he says that he'll allow Absalom back. It's under circumstances that really don't make anything better. Um, in verse 24 of chapter 14. It says... However, the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. When they meet again, David doesn't, again, seem to deal with the iniquity that Absalom uh, has, has implemented, that Absalom has been a part of. Skipping down to verse 32. <clears throat> it says, Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent for you. It be, he's, he's been trying to get a, a hold of Joab because he wants to have an audience with the king. Joab didn't answer the first one, and so he uh, sets fire to um, his fields. And so he says, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me still to be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there is iniquity in me, let him put me to death. So when Joab came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now, I, I, this is not to say that David's mercy isn't a beautiful characteristic. It's not to say that David, seeing this this uh, Absalom prostrate himself before him, it, 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 that it would uh, that maybe he he didn't fall prey to maybe some deception on Absalom's part. But even with all of that being said, the issue still was not dealt with. Absalom himself says, if there's iniquity in me, let's deal with it. He even says, then let him put me to death. And it doesn't seem like David deals with it fully. I, I, I'm all for being merciful. I'm all for trying to, uh, trying to emulate and imitate God Christ in in his commandments on how we are to forgive one another and how we are to help one another have compassion for one another but compassion does not mean leaving things unsaid it does not mean leaving problems unfixed it's just like in 1st Corinthians chapter 5 if there is sin in the congregation if there's sin in the assembly it must be dealt with it can't just be oh let's just turn a blind eye to it that's not compassion that's that's weakness that's not empathy That's really selfishness. Because what you're saying is, I don't care enough about you (laughs) to deal with this. And what you're saying is, I care more about me because I don't want to deal with the discomfort that comes with it. So, and I would just add to that, you can clearly see as you read throughout the story and read throughout the next couple of chapters, the full culmination of Absalom's conspiracy. He absolutely did not have a broken spirit that David talks about in Psalm 51, after his sin with Bathsheba. He, he absolutely did not have that contrite heart that God says, I, I'm willing to have mercy toward. And, and so because of that, I think that uh, it, because it was family, maybe David did not stay as, as, as convicted as he would with, with others. And so uh, not finally, but second to last, even, there are times where David even has to be rebuked for his mixed priorities when it comes to uh, his family, and, and particularly his sinful uh, family. In chapter 19, beginning in verse 1 of Second Samuel, this is right after it says uh, that he has been uh, that, that that Absalom has been killed; that he has been killed in the battle, and he is so just grief stricken. In verse 1 of chapter 19, it says, It was told, Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. The victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people. For the people, heard it said, for the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day, as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, O oh, my son, Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. How had he done that? For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. What is interesting about this is, it's kind of hard to look at Joab because he is not a very righteous man himself. He kind of is a flip-flop. He goes back and forth. Uh, he, he is not the, the most upright of men. But in this case, he seems to be giving good uh, recommendations to David. He seems to be giving a, a righteous rebuke, a rebuke that's deserved. David, how is it that you can look at an enemy of, let's face it, the Lord's anointed, David, how can you look at an enemy of the Lord's anointed who opposed himself against him with, with more compassion than all of the servants, all of your army, all of your soldiers that put their lives on the line to fight that one? Uh, it, it, it is amazing to see that rebuke. Because And even after that, David does not say, how dare you? He doesn't say, no, you're wrong, and this is why. He actually... Heeds the warning He Heeds the instruction The rebuke of Joab And he does what Joab says And what that seems to indicate Is that Joab was right He should have been celebrating With the men Because they had done him A great service They had, given, they had shown him honor There is victory In the land of Israel An enemy of God an enemy, An unrighteous man Was put to death For his sins For his rebellion That is a day of victory And he treated it as a day of sorrow. Now, all that just to say, ultimately, he he had clearly had mixed priorities. He didn't fully deal with the issues (coughs) when it came to his family, so he had to be rebuked for it. Um, So, finally, I come back to First Kings chapter one at the conclusion of his reign while he's sitting on essentially his deathbed because death is at the door you come back and you read (laughs) once more here is a son and a son that it says at the end of verse 6 was born after Absalom there's some context behind that name here's another son that exalts himself and says I'm going to be king he brings even more chaos he brings more destruction and why is it Because David never pained him. David never uh, crossed him about this. And it just makes me wonder, are there moments where it doesn't have to just be with, it doesn't have to just be with, uh, I, I, I think I got behind on the chart again, I'm sorry about that. But it doesn't just have to be with family. It could be with anybody. Is there someone, are there people, that we are not paining? that we are not crossing simply because maybe we don't have the courage? Simply because we lack the proper conviction? Maybe we don't have strong enough faith. What may be the reason? I think ultimately these things tended to occur between his children because David never fully corrected his family. He never had the heart to. It's so easy for us to do the same. So, with all that being said, would it be worth it? You've seen how much chaos was wrought from a lack of action. From even partial action, but he didn't go far enough. And so the question is, is is that good enough for you? There are certainly ways that we can look the part, that we can look like we're being righteous, that we can act like we have a relationship with Christ, and yet... All we're doing is just giving partial obedience. All we're doing is giving partial allegiance. Because it hasn't affected our whole lives. Because maybe we're keeping something that he said you can't bring into this kingdom. Is that you tonight? Or maybe you're someone who's just very simply been idle. You have heard the gospel message. You've heard the instruction that God has given you. You you understand that unless you're a part of his kingdom, you will be destroyed. Because what that means is you're a part of the the camp of the enemy are you willing to be idle when it comes to eternity God says I I can give you the ultimate reward God says you don't have to go to eternal damnation he makes it so accessible he makes it so clear for us to, to, to come before him and submit ourselves to that victory the question is again Are you willing to act on that? If you are tonight, we would love to assist you in that. If we are able to assist you in any way, please let your need be made known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.